Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Dr. Megan Rossi, PhD, RD, AKA the gut health doctor on Instagram is one of the most influential gut health specialists internationally. A practicing dietitian and nutritionist with an award-winning PhD in gut health, She is also a leading research fellow at King's College London, where she currently is investigating nutrition-based therapies in gut health. And today, she's here to chat about her new book, How to Eat More Plants, Transform Your Health with 30 Plant-Based Foods Per Week and Why It's Easier Than You Think. Megan, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure, Jason. So, plants, eat more plants. Uh, sometimes it, well, not sometimes it's quite simple yet. We all can't get it right. What I love about your approach, cause I think some people struggle with plant-based diet cause they just think of, all right, broccoli, spinach, dark leafy greens. And you know, I don't like those foods, but a key theme in your book is diversity. And so let's start there. How and why should we all be thinking about diversity and what does that look like in terms of our diet? Yeah, look, it it really comes down to this landmark scientific discovery that is our gut microbiome. So that's a sciencey name for the literally the trillions of microorganisms that live along our nine meter digestive tract. And these microorganisms honestly are game changing in terms of what it means to live longer, to be happier, to be of a healthier body weight, you know, better hormonal function, et cetera. And that's why I, essentially I wrote the book. So my work at King's, we've been for, for over the past decade, been investigating all of these different types of nutrition therapies and how they impact our gut microbes, not just to improve things like gut symptoms, but have this widespread effect. And one of the key principles that we see coming out around the reason you know plants are so beneficial is essentially because plants feed our gut bacteria. Now, we've known, as as you mentioned, that we all should be eating more plants. But I think, you know, a new element to this concept really is that diversity concept. And, you know, all the other countries around the world, there's always these kind of government mandates. We need to eat more fruit and veg and they kind of ran that down our throats. But actually, that's quite outdated advice because what we see from the science is that there is actually six different plant-based food groups. In the book, I call them the super six and there are whole grains, our nuts and seeds, our fruit, our veg, our legumes, and our herbs and spices. Now, each different category actually provides not just our body, but our gut microbes with a whole range of different plant chemicals. So the science shows that if we're actually cutting out some of these food groups, we could be missing some of the key fertilizers that feed different gut bacteria. So think more diverse plants, more diverse gut bacteria, and in turn, a more diverse range of skills that the bacteria can offer our body in terms of hormonal production, um, metabolism effects, mental health properties, etc. So that's really the principle that I guess is quite new to the scientific world and to, I guess, our nutrition um, kind of guidelines is eating a diverse range of plants, not just, you know, your fruit and veg. As I mentioned, I tend to fall into the trap. It's a good trap of, you know, dark leafy greens. And what I think is so interesting about your approach, and you you talk about these different groups, you say not all plants are created equal. And you actually, in in the book, have this methodology, your your plant-based diet index, or PDI, 
everyone loves numbers. We love, we love methodology. So can you walk us through your plant-based index? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one, which some researchers developed a number of years ago. And what they, they showed is that they kind of, they did it to bust the myth out there that eating plants automatically means you're healthier. Um, and I think this is an important one to bust because this whole movement towards 100% plant-based eating, so i.e. veganism, everyone thinks that automatically that means healthy and when that's just not the case. So, you know, I still work as a, a clinical dietitian. I see all the time these people making the mistake thinking that just because they're vegan means they're healthier. So what the index did is it highlighted that there were, I guess, two categories of plant-based foods. One, which was called the healthy plant-based index, which is the things like, you know, those whole versions of the super six. And the other was the unhealthy plant-based index, which include things like, you know, refined uh, whole grains, you know, uh, cakes, all of those sorts of things, which actually technically are based from plants, but ultra refined processed plants. Uh, And what they showed is that if we're increasing the number of the healthy plant-based foods, i.e. our plant-based index, then yes, we're going to live longer, lower risk of heart disease, be happier, etc., and also have better gut health. But when they looked at the opposite, the more we were increasing these unhealthy plant-based foods, actually, the more we were likely to, you know, have a higher risk of heart disease, have poorer mental health, etc. So it really does get us thinking that not all plants mean that they're automatically healthy. One of the, the key principles comes down to that whole form. And that's because the more we process these plants means the more we're stamping out those beneficial plant chemicals, which we call phytochemicals, which really are the magic bullet, I guess, for our gut microbiome. Before we go to phytochemicals, can you share some of the top ranking plants on that PDI ranking? Yeah, so they come from all of the super six, but things like, you know, your quinoa and your buckwheat for the the whole grains, your fruit, any sort of fresh fruit, like your berries, um, even things like bananas uh, in terms of the nuts and seeds. Again, any like walnuts, pumpkin seeds, chia seeds, herbs and spices, you know, the mixed herbs are a great one. Um, Turmeric, another great one, cinnamon, uh, legumes. You know, I'm a big advocate of not just choosing your chickpea or your your butter beans, but actually getting the four bean mix as long as it's, you know, in water. So you're not adding extra salt or sugars to it. That's a really great one. Um, and then the same with the plants, any sort of whole form plants, whether it's things like your your leafy greens that you're a big fan of or your tomato or your peppers, your, your capsicum, any of them. But the key, I guess, differentiator is just how processed they were. And so you mentioned phytochemicals. You know, if I go to the why, a large story of the why, why plant-based diet works or, or predominantly plant-based, assuming you're eating the right types of plants, there's plants are full of phytochemicals. And there, we know that phytochemicals have a number of health benefits. And in the book, you list five. You've got your antioxidant inflammation quenching powers. You've got your hormone regulators, your barrier warriors, your immune supporters, and brain messengers. So can you briefly walk us through each one of these. Yeah, look, I mean, like you said, this really is something that we've only just begin to uncover this whole world of phytochemicals. And those five different categories really do, I guess, highlight those five mechanisms of action of how these phytochemicals are actually protecting us from, you know, things like the common cold, but even things like COVID-19, urinary tract infections, different types of cancers, even potentially. And one of the things I think, I hope that the Brooke 
you know, is really um, brings to the forefront is around things like every single plant has its own properties in terms of those five different categories and those phytochemicals. So for example, the apple, I've dissected that there, and there's over 300 different plant chemicals within that, including things like dopamine, which you know is a feel-good hormone. You've got incitol again, which we know is really important for regulating um, hormones and is helpful for polycystic ovary syndrome, you know, and I could go on to all the other properties. So it's not, it's it's not that there's just, you know, one or two kind of categories of plants that have all five. Pretty much most plants to some degree can fit one of their phytochemicals within those five mechanisms of action. So if you extrapolate that out, you know, that humble apple out to all the other plants out there, you start to appreciate that each different type of species it's kind of like it has its own magical powers. And that's, again, coming back to that diversity. You know, there's no such thing necessarily as a superfood because if you're just eating broccoli or you're just eating kale or berries, actually you're narrowing down your window of these phytochemicals that then in turn feed the gut bacteria. And you're not getting that full breadth um, that we see. Uh, it really has those health properties in terms of longevity, hormone control, et cetera. So you mentioned you dissected an apple. I love that in the book because I feel like apples do not get enough respect. We, t we tend to talk about berries all the time, myself included, you know, blackberries, raspberries, blueberries, but we don't talk about apples. So let's spend a, a minute giving credit to the beautiful apple. So can you walk through all that good stuff that's in an apple? Yeah. So, you know, including those 300 um, phytochemicals, I think another fact that people don't necessarily realize is that apples contain close to 100 million bacteria just in each and every apple. So not only within the apple are you getting not just, you know, one type of prebiotic fiber. And, you know, when we talk about fiber, we know fiber actually has no benefit for human cells. We can't digest fiber. The reason why fiber is linked to so many health outcomes because it's it feeds our gut bacteria. But one of the things I think it's worth highlighting is that although we talk about fiber like it's one thing, there's like close to 100 different types of fibers. And what we need to get that optimal gut health is that diversity. So again, in the apple, you know, there's at least eight different types of fibers, which then in turn feeds the different gut bacteria. We've got those, those prebiotic types of fiber. We also have more of the, the cellulitic types of fiber, which feed other types of bacteria, like kind of slowing, slower digest. So we're not only getting, I guess, the prebiotics, which feed the gut bacteria. We also have those, you know, hundreds of millions of bacteria on the skin. Now they don't necessarily all have a benefit, those, those bacteria on the skin. But what we're seeing is that it's a concept of diversity. So if you're getting in more of these plant-based microbes that naturally live on the skin, then you're going to be, again, nourishing, you know, that community within you of the, you know, those trillions of microbes. Let's segue to peanut butter because, or nut butter more generally, because that is my favorite pairing for a great organic apple. And so something you talk about, you talk about the, the gut brain axis, the gut skin axis and the gut metabolism axis. And <laughs> something you mentioned that you talk about gorging on peanut butter and avocados as we think about the gut metabolism axis. And so let's spend a moment before we fully go into metabolism, nut butters and our relationship with nut butters and in your opinion, are there better nut butters to enjoy when we have that beautiful lush apple? 
and how should we think about nut butters in general and metabolism? Yeah, look, one of the the key concepts um, that I talk about the in the book is about you know including whole plants. It's not excluding anything. So if you're really pro and love nut butters, I'm like, yeah, have your nut butters. That's absolutely fine. Um, but hey, why don't we add some extra whole foods in there? So. I personally, like you, do love a good nut butter. But some of the the key things to think about is that um, nut butter actually is going to provide your body with a lot more energy compared to if you're having the whole version of that nut. Now, the reason for that is it's been quite highly processed. And in turn, a lot of the oils, which actually we wouldn't be able to access if we ate it in its whole form, actually we're absorbing. So it's a lot more calorific, which again, there's nothing wrong with that. But if your key focus is around, you know, your weight management and reaching a happy goal, then gorging on nut butter is not the best thing. What I would say is have your handful of mixed nuts um, because in turn, you're not actually around 30% of the, the calories within whole nuts. Actually, we malabsorb uh, because we can't actually break down all those cell walls to extract all of the, the calories. So I definitely recommend we try most of our, our nuts come from whole forms versus the nut butters. But if you are doing the nut butters, butters which I absolutely do, um, I recommend going for the combination of nut butters. So I'm not sure if they've got the brand uh, over in the US, but one of the brands I love here has got four, literally nothing else in it except four different types of nuts in it, um, ground down. And it's such a creamy kind of really even sweet, despite not having any added sugars in it, combination. Uh, so that's why I would recommend try get the diversity of nuts in your nut butter if possible. So for those looking to recreate this at home, myself included right after the show, what what are those nuts or nut butters that we should be combining? Yeah, so they had cat they have cashews, um, hazelnuts, walnuts, and and nut um, peanut butter all mixed together. Got it. So so staying on metabolism specifically the gut metabolism axis what what are we getting wrong because i think of metabolism it's a vehicle for many to weight loss what are we getting wrong about understanding the gut metabolism axis and ultimately weight loss i think there's so much more information than we had years ago yet we're becoming more and more unhealthy more overweight what are we getting wrong yeah, look, I mean, I, I share one of the, the my client's stories in the book about what I see so often in clinic. And that's when people are, if they want to lose weight, they're fixating on calories. And it's certainly not helped by the fact that the government in the UK has literally just mandated that all menu um, menus need to now have the calorie information. Now, I'm not saying that calorie information is useless, but calorie fixation, there is a number of limitations to it. Um, the first one, as I mentioned, you know, whole foods actually provide our body with less calories than what the label says. Things like, you know, almonds, for example, contain your body with 30% less calories than what, what it says. So you needing to keep in mind that actually the calorie information is not as accurate as we've been led to believe. And that's because the way we work out calories in the lab is very different to how our digestive system works. The second thing to keep in mind around, you know, this the kind of the calorie the fixation is the thermogenic effect of food. And there was a really great paper in Cell Metabolism, um, which actually had two uh, meals that, or two kind of rows of meals that were identically matched for calories. Um, but one was using 
unprocessed foods and one was using ultra processed. So it was had the same number of total calories according to the pack, as well as same carbs, proteins and fats. Now, when the participants followed the um, diet, the whole foods diet, actually, they lost significantly more weight than when they were following the ultra processed version. Um, in fact, they actually gained weight during that version, despite being matched for calories. And again, that in part comes down to that thermogenic effect of food, that when we actually eat food, we do burn calories. And if we're having a, you know, ultra-processed foods, actually, it's already been digested for us, so we don't actually burn that much calories compared to more of the complex types of foods, like these whole foods, that requires more, more calories to burn. So that is another really important one. But then the third element, I think, that we've gotten really wrong is when we're fixating on calories, we completely forget about our gut microbiome and how important that is for regulating our metabolism. And an example is, you know, I give in the book in terms of a Kit Kat and a banana contain similar calories. So if you're fixating on calories, obviously you're going to go Kit Kat. You're like, hell yeah, so much more fun. But actually you don't realize that bananas got potassium for your heart health. Um, you know, it also has the prebiotics, the fibers that feed the gut bacteria, as you know, well as many other types of um, components to it. And in terms of those prebiotics, what happens is when we eat these prebiotics, most of them are actually types of fiber. The bacteria get them because humans, we can't digest them. So they go through most of our nine meter digestive tract undigested. They reach the last part where that's where most of the microbes live. And the bacteria then ferment the fiber. They produce these chemicals called short chain fatty acids, which then help regulate our appetite hormones, ghrelin, leptin, and help make us, you know, be less full and keep us more satisfied and less likely to snack and have larger portions, et cetera. So that's kind of the missing piece that I think a lot of people struggle with weight loss do is they just fix on the numbers on the pack and the calories and they forget actually if you have something maybe it's got slightly more calories in it but it's going to feed your gut bacteria and keep you fuller for longer as well as we know our microbes at least in animal studies are really important fat displacement throughout the body as well so there's so many factors that our gut bacteria are doing that really underpins our body weight so if we're looking to optimize our gut metabolism axis for weight loss, can you list some of, you know, maybe your top three to five foods that we should try to incorporate into our diet? Yeah. So I list a lot of them in the books. So I've got my, for each of the different axes. So things like live yogurt is a really great one for your, your gut metabolism axis. Also, we know that things like um, quinoa is another great source because of not only those phytochemicals, but it's got the protein, the plant protein in it as well, which is good for the microbes. Vinegars are also really good. Uh, we know that they can help nourish the gut and in turn that, that gut um, immune axis. And then another one uh, would probably be your chia seeds, another great source of your, your plant-based omega-3s. I noticed you've got a couple of grains on that list. Yeah. How do you think about grains and weight loss? Because there are definitely a couple different different schools of thought on that one. Yeah, look, I think, you know, there is so many different types of grains and I'm not talking about kind of this ultra processed brown bread 
um, that I think some people have kind of grouped into this whole grain version. I'm talking about things like wheat berries where they're so chewy and nutty to taste. Um, They're so incredibly high in dietary fiber and they're really good at regulating things like our appetite. So I'm talking about things like the the wheat berries, things like your jumbo oats, not refined oats because we know that refined oats have bigger impact on your blood sugar spikes. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm not saying go top heavy on the grains. Um, It's all within, I guess, you know, the, the super six group. So the priorities is always going to be your veg. And the recommendations that, you know, I talk about in the book in the portions of grains is three serves, which is half a cup, which actually most of us are having double, if not more than that, most days of grains. So I think with certainly most people are having too many refined grains in their diet and they're not getting enough of those other five categories within the super six. So I'm a, I am a a fan of including whole, like the legitimate whole grains uh, for weight management. And I've seen over the past 15 years that work wonders for weight management, but I think there is just mis miscommunication. It's not talking about couscous. I'm not talking about brown bread that's ultra processed or refined oats. Well, I also love that you mentioned yogurt because you tend not to hear yogurt in a, in a list to optimize metabolism. So I'm assuming full fat yogurt, low sugar. How do you, how, let's be, let's clearly define yogurt. Yeah. So I talk about the live full fat yogurt. Um, so it's usually around 5% fat and a lot of people are like, Oh my God, if I'm trying to lose fat, I don't want to eat fat. Um, but actually what we know is the fat can help you keep, keep you full of long, but also the fat protects the live microbes that are within the yogurt. And we think those microbes actually can also help regulate that gut metabolism axis. So if we're having low fat yogurt, um, what happens is those microbes are more likely to, to die off essentially because the acidic nature of the gut. And actually we've got studies to show that for weight management, full fat natural yogurt, so no added sugar yogurt, actually is linked with a lower body weight. Um, so we do actually have some you know, decent amount of uh, evidence to support actually adding in a full fat yogurt into your diet. Again, in the whole context of your diet, I'm not saying having 500 gram tub every night, um, but having you know, two tablespoons. Well, I, I love that because I think what you're hitting on, we tend to talk about in, in this industry, the same foods over and over again. Uh, and you don't tend to hear yogurt and you don't tend to hear some of the grains in the context of metabolism weight loss. And so another question on yogurt for me, and I'm sure not alone here, but I'm going to have yogurt. Sometimes I like a little sweetener on it. So what, what is your position? If you're going to have a little something, let's, we're not going to overdo it in terms of a sweetener. How do you think about sweeteners and metabolism and weight loss or some better than others? Yeah, look, so in the book, I actually also have around 80 gut loving recipes. And what I've done in all of those recipes is the sweetness because I'm, you know, I'm a big foodie. I'm not going to forgo a delicious kind of sweet treat. But what I've ensured is that the, the sweetness always comes from a whole food. Um, so whether it comes from a whole date or whether it comes from, you know, whole apple or whether it comes from, you know, banana, for example. And the reason I've, I've done that is because yes, we want that sweet factor, but these fruits are naturally packaged alongside a range of different dietary fibers, which have been shown to reduce the blood sugar spike that occurs when you have sugar, um, 
So I'm not talking about this kind of fake natural, not fake, but kind of like, oh, you know. Well, I was thinking along the lines of like your natural. So like monk fruit, honey, agave, uh, coconut sugar. Those are some of the ones I'm not, you know, that, that are natural. How do you think about that, the, that, that group in terms of glycemic impact and weight loss? Yeah, so all of those those natural versions, despite them being natural, they still do all spike your blood sugars because at the end of the day, you know, however they're packaged, they get into your body and that your body breaks down those glucose molecules that gets into your blood and spikes your blood sugars. But how we prevent that spiking is by adding fiber to them. And that's why I always recommend where you can is the having the, the sweetness coming from your whole whole fruits, like the dates. So yes. The date also has those natural sweeteners in it, but because it also has a fiber, we see during these blood sugar studies that the fiber makes the blood sugar spike less blunt. So it kind of goes like that. Instead of if you're having honey or agave, it's like a sharp spike like that. Um, so it's about kind of doing that combination of the fiber with, with the sweetness. What I've found personally, honey and agave will spike. Coconut sugar will slightly spike monk fruit no spike yeah so that's one of the the really um interesting things that monk fruit offers and it's actually not allowed um it's not been approved yet in the uk uh for use yeah um because it's it's very similar to the there or essentially it is a non-calorific type of sweetener so similar to stevia um and the artificial versions like saccharin and aspartame etc Obviously, it's very different because it's not the artificial versions, but not, they don't actually provide energy for the body. And that's why um, the monk fruit stimulates your taste sweetened buds, but actually it doesn't get broken down into glucose and therefore can't spike your blood sugars. Um, so I'm actually waiting uh, for studies to be done looking at the impact of monk fruit on our gut microbiome because we know that for these other sweeteners like stevia and even some of the more artificial ones like aspartame saccharin etc they've been shown in test tube subs anyway to have a negative impact on some of your gut microbes um so i i'm very very interested about uh, in around the monk fruit to seeing what that actually does yeah aspartame and sucralose are like the worst and they're in everything. It's it's horrific. It's really, um, uh, yeah, bad. I, I love the topic of gut everything axis. And you, and you go through all, all of them in the book. But there's there's one more I want to touch on, the gut skin axis. And I, and I, love, a good, I love a good grocery list. So if we're going to eat for our gut skin axis, what, what, are, what are your top five foods to make sure we're, we're optimizing? Yeah, so definitely dark chocolate, um, which a lot of people are happy to hear about. And that's because it's got these types of uh, phytochemicals, the flavonoids in it. And actually, they've done a study which showed that um, adding in the flavonoids from dark chocolate significantly reduced the appearance of wrinkles compared to a placebo group. Um, so we definitely see this nice, clear gut skin axis there with the dark chocolate. So can you clarify, because I've got... A lot of dark chocolate lovers who are listening, myself included, is it 70%? Is it 80%? Is there a critical threshold? Well, the study uh, actually was 100% um, in terms of the cacao 
level. Um, but you know what? Certainly I see in clinical practice that if you can get a good 80%, you're doing, you're doing well. Even if you're into 70, you know, it's better than going your kind of your typical uh, you know, dairy, white chocolate, so to speak, in terms of those flavonoid benefits. So that's the first one, dark chocolate. Green tea, another great one for the skin. Um, we know walnuts, again, because they've got the um, the omega-3 in it. But you know what? I also recommend uh, oily fish for those who are happy to have animal foods. And I think that's one of the other messages in the book is that I recommend mostly plants, but not only plants, now, I completely understand religious, cultural, animal cruelty reasons why people want to go 100% plant-based, but actually the studies do, in terms of health, doesn't recommend that you, you should necessarily go vegan to be healthier because we know things like your oily fish has got amazing source of those omega-3s in it that even the plant sources can't really replicate. Um, so even though you've got, you know, you're nodding. You're a, you're in a agreeance there, yeah. I, I loved your book, and it was I was so glad you made that point because a hundred percent plant based is not necessarily the best diet, and there are certain things, as you point out, you just cannot get in a plant based form. Like like getting a plant based omega, it is just not the same from getting a omega-3 fatty acid rich in DHA and EPA. And I, I, to your point, I get all the objections, whether ethical, so on, of why you're not going to eat meat. But you should take an omega-3 supplement or have a great fatty fish because you need that. Everything we know about brain health, cardiovascular health, and it's just so refreshing because you, you know, you know, we live in a very polarized world that tends to be all or nothing. And I, it's just, it, it's a big myth. You can't get omega-3 fatty acids from plants, period. Yeah. So I, I mean that I'm so happy you, you've kind of rehoned on that because it's such an important one. I see it in clinic all the time. If you want to go vegan, you absolutely should be on an algae oil supplement. Um, cause that's, I guess the only plant that contains those long chain omega threes, which is what we need for things like our mental health, our skin health, etc. Um, other ones are berries we know, and I know that you're a big fan of the, the berries. So we know that they are also super rich in those phytochemicals, specifically the polyphenols. Uh, and then avocado, another great source of things like vitamin E, which is really good for that, that gut skin axis. So, you know, in terms of the gut skin axis, I think what we're finding out is really fascinating. We literally have a second skin of billions of microbes um, and the gut bacteria and the skin microbes are, are communicating via our immune system. And people with things like eczema and psoriasis, they're actually starting to do these, these um, skin microbiome transplants and showing that actually they can, that will be like the new treatment for them is relaying down their skin microbiome. Wow, that's interesting. Are they doing that anywhere yet? Not in a clinical sense, but in in a clinical, sorry, not in a practical sense, um, but in clinical trials, absolutely. The one, one was just published showing really remarkable benefits for eczema. And I'll take it a step further. They've also um, published a study recently looking at fecal transplants. So still transplants, 
for eczema. Um, so we know that still transplants have been done for many, many years for curing gut infections like C. diff. It's literally life-changing. And they're actually some more promising research in those with inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis. But they've then gone to have a look because of this two-way com- um, connection between the gut and skin, looking at, um, yeah, really impressive results for a subset of the participants with a stool sample from a non-eczema person to someone with eczema resolved uh, their eczema um, for I think it was a period for around three months. So a lot more research I think is is going into the the stool transplant for via that gut skin axis. So stool transplant, it is what it sounds like. What what about in terms of a, a skin microbiome transplant? Is that through the stool as well, or is that skin to skin? What does that look like? Yeah, so so the, there was a two that looked at for eczema. So one was the stool transplant, where it's you know as like he said is what it is. The other one was a skin microbiome transplant, and that was taking the microbiome, the skin microbiome from a healthy person without eczema, and putting it into this lotion, and then applying it each day onto the skin of someone with eczema. Um, so yeah, I think topical probiotics they're calling them. Or kind of conjunction of all the different types uh, will be the way forward. Yeah, I, I think pre, pro, postbiotics in terms of skincare and the microbiome or the next frontier, and it's it's really exciting. Um, you know, something you mentioned earlier, I want to come back to protein, specifically plant-based protein. That question comes up so frequently. <laughs> what, what are the best sources of plant based protein in your opinion yeah well i mean it's not just my opinion but in the book you can see that there is like a a little tree diagram which lists out some really good sources of plant protein so um you know we've got those hard values we know that really our legumes probably are the best source of plant proteins so a couple of lentils i think contains around 10 or so grams of, of protein plant protein even things like oats raw oats are another really good source of of plant proteins which people don't realize and then obviously in the legume category agree you've got your tofu another great source but it really does add up in terms of the amount of protein people can get and you know um the general recommendations is getting at least one gram of of protein per kilogram of body weight um and as we get older maybe a little bit more than that which is actually quite doable uh if you start to think about you know making sure that at least two of your meals you're having some sort of legume um, as well as a nut and, you know, your your whole grain. So, again, coming back to that super six, getting in that diversity, you're going to get that right mix of the building blocks of protein known as amino acids. So you can very easily get a complete protein. So all of those amino acids that you need to build the muscles in your body via plants. So you're a researcher. You've cited a couple different studies as, as we've been speaking I'm curious, is there one study that has really stood out to you that's recent where you, where you said, that's really interesting, I'm going to pay attention to this? Yeah, look, I think one which changed my my practice as a clinician, um, actually, you know, a couple of years on now, but it was the SMILES trial. And it was the first time. So obviously back at university 15 or so years ago, we get taught, we got taught that food could have an impact on your mood. Yeah, you know, there's a loose link there, but hey, let's not overclaim that. Um, but the researchers, um, which were actually it was done in um, in Australia from the Food and Mood Institute by um, Felice Jacker, 
Professor Felice Jacker. And what she showed for the very first time in a very nice, robust study that having a whole lot of added plants into your diet could significantly and clinically improve people who had diagnosed depression. So they randomized half the participants to getting a gut boosting diet, which I'll I'll mention, you know, the details of that in a tick. Um, And the other half got a befriending type of counseling, which was really important to make sure any benefit in the diet group wasn't just because they were seeing a research dietitian, but actually because of the food. So two groups, nicely controlled, followed for 12 weeks. Then they came back, reassessed their mental health using these validated questionnaires we use in clinical practice. In the diet group, 32% of them had a significant improvement in their depression scores, which would have classified them as no longer clinically depressed. And so these people had moderate severe depression as a baseline. And yet in the control group, that was only 8%. And this is certainly like it gave me confidence then as a clinician to be like, you know what, I can make a real dent in, in people's mental health via boosting their diet with with more plants and that gut boosting diet was very much Mediterranean it's similar I guess to the principles I talk about in the book which I call the diversity diet um, where it actually gave the participants 50 grams of fiber a day now most governments um, I mean I know in the U.S. there's a difference between male and female they might be at the top end recommending 35 grams of fiber Um, most people in in the U.S. are certainly getting much less like 20 grams under 20 grams of fiber a day but this gave 50 grams of fiber a day Um, and you know, that is definitely something which is very attainable for people. And and all the recipes in my book, you know, contain at least 10 to 15 grams of fiber per, per meal. It's really easy to do. You just need to think about working with, with the diversity of plants. Well, it's very interesting because, you know, I talked to lots of holistic psychiatrists and we've had many conversations around brain health and, and food and nutrition and, what, what does everyone say? Mediterranean diet, healthy fats. Uh, we never really explicitly talk about fiber. And, you know, our mutual friend, uh, Will Bushwitz, you know, wrote a book on fiber. And, and we get a huge, fi- huge fiber problem here in America. We have a huge mental health problem. Uh, so it, it doesn't feel like we're paying enough attention to fiber and the connection between fiber and brain health. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's... True, but that, you know, that's why I think hopefully the message around gut health, a lot of people are kind of going, oh, this is really exciting. People get that's kind of the missing link. We've always known people who ate more fiber had, you know, better overall health, but we never really understood that mechanism. And I'm starting to see in clinic that when I explain, actually, we now understand the mechanism. Fiber is fertilizer for those gut bacteria. In turn, there is this clear gut brain axis. We know our bacteria can improve our mood, you know, via three mechanisms, via the immune system, via our enteric nervous system, kind of like a mobile phone. And actually the the bacteria can actually produce the chemicals which get and pass um, the blood brain barrier and then impact the brain that way. So we we do have the science. Um, So I'm really, yeah, passionate about people understanding that, you know what, it sucks if you've got a mental health condition and it's so heterogeneous. So we certainly can't solve everyone's via diet. Um, but we can really make a significant impact in people's mental health 
literally by something we can control and that's you know adding more diverse range of plants into your diet but as you said not necessarily plants only you know the diet certainly had your full fat yogurt natural yogurt in there it had your oily fish in there had some eggs in there and things like that which comes back you know this is the key principle i always talk about it's about inclusion not exclusion so you can have the animal foods you know and the the treat foods that you enjoy it just bulking out on that diversity of plants so in closing, I figured we'd have a lot of fun. And, you know, as we've talked about, there tends to be a herd mentality in health and wellness where we've got, you know, the, the superfood du jour of the month or the year and everyone talks about it and we move on to the next one, you know, kale years ago and then quinoa and then something else. And what, what I love about your book and your approach is, you know, you talked a lot about an apple. We don't give apples enough credit. In your opinion, what's the most underrated plant that we're not talking enough about because of its robust health benefits? It really has to be legumes. You know, whether it's your chickpeas, blood beans, black beans, all of that. Like, for example, black beans have the same anthocyanins, those plant chemicals that's behind all the health benefits of blueberries, you know, but black beans and all the other legumes are so accessible. You know, I Canned versions are absolutely fine as long as they're not in in the salt or any sort of brine attached to it. And, you know, they're loaded with prebiotics called galacto-oligosaccharide. They nourish the gut bacteria. You know, I, I can't, the only downfall, actually, which I bust in the book uh, with my sensitive gut menu plan, is that, you know, some people with more sensitive guts, yeah, they might get a little bit of extra gas and bloating, but that's just because their body's not used to it. And, you know, over the past 15 years as a clinician, there's not been a gut that I haven't been able to teach how to enjoy legumes without those negative side effects. Um, so it, I, you know, I'm a really big believer that everyone should be getting in legumes. Yes, maybe for the short term, I, in the protocol I talk about in the book, we might cut them out um, or reduce them for a four-week period, but then we systematically reintroduce them to teach the gut microbes and what the microbes do they love beans they develop the right enzymes to be able to more effectively you know metabolize the gas that naturally gets produced and instead of it coming out of the back end or getting trapped in our gut actually it passes our gut lining and we breathe out that extra gas uh, once our gut's been trained to deal with beans properly um, so that definitely has to be the most underrated uh, uh, plant out there in my opinion I, I love black beans and uh, you're going to make my friend Dan Butner of Blue Zones very, very happy as he continually sings, sings the praises uh, of legumes. Megan, thank you so much. Loved your book, How to Eat More Plants. Thank you for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining.